Jim. <laughs> What's the matter, Sport? Thought I heard something. Children, where are you? Please come back. Auntie? Yes, yeah, my dear. A brief epilogue for concerned parents. Of course, there isn't any such place as the gingerbread house of Aunt T, and we grown-ups know there's no door at the bottom of a swimming pool that leads to a secret place. But who can say how real the fantasy world of lonely children can become? For Jeb and Sports Sherwood, the need for love turned fantasy into reality. They found a secret place in the Twilight Zone. On June 19, 1964, the Twilight Zone ended with those words, with an episode called The Bewitching Pool, written by Earl Hamner Jr. If you're listening to me talking now, you are either a subscriber to the Twilight Zone podcast or a supporter on Patreon. Well, this show is the $3 subscription level on Patreon, where... I look at each and every one of the Twilight Zone reboot episodes from the 80s show to the 2000s show. But these are going to be a little bit different. I'm only going to go with short audio reviews of the episode, maybe about 10 to 20 minutes each one, and just have a very instinctive kind of reaction to them. I will watch them and then turn on that microphone and give some thoughts. But what are the ground rules here? You know, it's kind of difficult because the original Twilight Zone had such a timeless quality to it that one accusation we never make, or very rarely make, is that it looks dated or feels dated. I think I might have said it once or twice in the Twilight Zone podcast, and each time I've probably said, this is something that I rarely, if ever, do because it does have such a timeless quality about it. But let's lay our cards on the table. The 80s Twilight Zone, I think, has dated. You only need to look at an episode and it doesn't have that freshness, that vibrancy and that timelessness of the original Twilight Zone. But am I going to sit here and make that criticism every time? I guess it's something that I'm going to have to put to one side unless it's just completely hitting me in the face so that's going to be quite a difficult thing to go with also how forgiving should i be of an episode not feeling the same as the original show on the one hand yes it is the twilight zone and they are trying to carry on that wonderful name that wonderful tradition but at the same time it's a new show it's a new time it's a new age so it does need to be for the time and it should be i suppose a little bit different but it should also have that twilight zone magic so that's going to be a difficult one to do to really put aside my love for the original show but not too much because at the end of the day they're trying to make the twilight zone so that i think is going to be an ongoing battle when i look at these shows but i guess one thing we can say is that when they approach this project you know, they were getting people involved. There was stories written by Harlan Ellison. There was directors like Wes Craven. So they were pulling people in, you know, and trying to really make 
a quality product. It was Twilight Zone the movie that opened the doors to the Twilight Zone 80s show. But Twilight Zone the movie was a bit hit and miss. I know a lot of people have love for it, but it was uneven to say the least. So does this carry over into the show? That's what we're here to do. So let's start with our first story in the 80s Twilight Zone, which is Shatterday. First broadcast on September 27th, 1985, written by Alan Brennart, based on a short story by Harlan Ellison, and directed by Wes Craven. So we start out with Peter Novens, played by Bruce Willis, in a bar, and he's very smart, he has a suit on, and he's sitting having a drink. Now, I think my first observation here is that it would have been quite easy to just make him a bit of an arse from the get-go, you know, a bit of a, a bully or a nasty person. But that kind of comes throughout when you hear about the things that he's done, and we'll come to that in a little bit. But here at the beginning, he's just sitting in a bar. He's obviously very smart, but I do wonder whether they were tapping into the kind of... You know, the 80s were a time when I remember people of my class, the working class, having a bit of a grudge against these city guys, you know, the Wall Street type guys, the stock exchange guys, guys dressed in suits who seemed to be spinning money out of nothing, out of thin air and spending it like it was, you know, pouring water down a drain. And I do remember a bit of resentment at that time for it because it did seem to be that the working class people were doing the hard work and these city guys were flashing the cash and really not doing much for it you know they had these kind of Patrick Bateman-esque roles where you don't really know what they actually do so it's kind of interesting I do wonder if that's what they're making them out to be and we we get to a little bit of that later on in the episode damn what Dial the number I know best instead of Jamie's office. I dial my own number. Did you ever do that? Hello. I'm sorry. I must have dialed the wrong number. What number did you want? Klondike 5, 6189. This is Klondike 5, 6189. Who are you calling? Nah, I must have dialed wrong. This can't be Klondike 5-6189. Yeah? That's the number you've reached. Who did you want? Wasn't calling anybody at this number. Wait a minute. Are you sure this is Klondike 56189? <laughs> I think I know my own number, pal. Who are you? Peter Novins. Who are you? I'm Peter Novins. 
So after that first call, each version of Peter Noven seems to be very surprised at the existence of the other. We don't know which one is good, which one is bad, whether that is indeed the case. Now often people will talk about this episode as being quite similar to Mirror Image from the original Twilight Zone, one of my favourite episodes. And there is that element of a doppelganger being there, but I don't think it's a doppelganger in the traditional sense because doppelgangers in folklore were generally quite uh, evil. Whereas here, I think it's a bit more in keeping with Nervous Man in a $4 room. And we'll get to a bit more of that parallel later on. I'm gonna do something about this. Go ahead, knock yourself out. How about if I come over there and kick your butt out into the street? I thought about that. But do you really think you wanna risk it? What? You think this happens every day? You think that what we have here is ordinary? What does that gotta do with me coming back to the apartment I live in? you ever hear that two objects can't occupy the same space at the same time? Basic. We can't both be Novans, can we? <laughs> okay, things might get quite confusing here talking about these two versions of Peter Noven, so... I will do my best to make that distinct. The first Peter Novens that were introduced to from the bar and the Peter Novens in the apartment who stays there throughout most of the episode, both of them are quite confused in that original call. But as the calls go on, it seems to be apartment Novens who has a bit of an idea about what's going on here. While bar Novens just gets more and more confused and more and more starts to shatter. Now here's something that comes up about maybe halfway through the story because the episode is pretty much a series of phone calls between each version of Peter Novens. Now Bar Novens ends up checking into a hotel so he becomes Hotel Novens and then we have Apartment Novens. In the original Twilight Zone often we would be presented with some strange occurrence, some piece of supernatural just kind of dropped into the middle of a story. And I would say nine times out of ten, we didn't really get an explanation for that. Sometimes we did, it was a time machine or whatever, or aliens. But often it would just be people going around their lives and something strange would happen that ended up having these kind of consequences. Now, in this one, Peter Novens actually sort of tries to think about or talk about to the other version what exactly has caused this. I'm doing some figuring. Remember that old Jack London novel, Star Rover? How he used astral projection to get out of his body? Well, I think that's what happened to me. I said you went while I was sleeping, maybe. And I decided I'm me. You're just a little piece of me that wandered off. I'd get along just fine without you. <laughs> Great theory, man. But try this one. Remember the weekend when I went to Kenny's lab and he took that curling photo of my my aura? Well, this is my theory. Somehow something something got something got out. I don't know. Some part of me. Some uh, something. 
So on the one hand, they do sort of try and explain it to a degree, but it's only supposition. There isn't exactly a concrete explanation for what's going on. So I guess it is kind of still in line with that traditional way the Twilight Zone used to do it, where strange things don't really need an explanation as long as they fit into the story quite well. And I have to say, at this point, I am enjoying it. You know, it would have been quite easy to make Hotel Novens the kind of real bad guy from the get-go, but they don't really do it that way. You know, there is that image in the beginning. Is, is he one of these up-and-coming yuppies who, you know, is flitting money away while ordinary people are working hard? You know, is it tapping into that? I don't know. But they don't present him as some demon. Even at one point, Apartment Novan said to him, the, the worst part is you know it. You know you're doing these things wrong. So it's not like he's bad to the core and doesn't care. Maybe he's just found himself in a kind of life where he's, he's being carried along with it. So his bad deeds aren't shown to us really, but as we go throughout with phone call after phone call after phone call, Apartment Novans tells him about the bad deeds, tells him about the things he's done. Maybe the one who deserves to be Peter Novans should be the one to take over the light. Does that sound reasonable to you? I don't know. Just a... Every, everybody deserves to go on living. Oh, God, spare me the philosophy, will you, Novins? You don't believe that for a second. You're a misanthrope. You hate people. Not true. Just hate some of the things people do. Like guys who put Save the Wheel bumper stickers on their cars and then buy their wives for coats. Hypocrite. You have the gall to complain about that and you took on that Cumberland account? That's another thing entirely. Sure it is. You know damn well Cumberland's gonna strip mine the guts out of that county and they'll get away with it. That publicity campaign you dreamed up. Great PR man, Novins. So which one is the real Peter Novins? Well, to a degree they both are. I think that's what it's telling us because prior to this, Peter Novins did bad things, but I don't think he was a bad guy through and through. You know, he convinced himself of certain things or was intolerant of certain things like his mother being around or you know he would go and do his job and convince himself that there was no other way of doing it even though other people were coming off worse you know he wasn't an out and out villain but he made bad choices and he made wrong choices and I personally subscribe to maybe one of two theories the first being that Apartment Novens is kind of Novens Prime, if you will, the basis, the, the kid who was born good and grew up and was slightly corrupted and did these sort of bad things and jettisoned off this part of himself into this other Novens, the one who sort of bears the brunt of the bad things and eventually starts to wither away. Because he's, he's made a choice and that kind of feeds in to my second theory that actually these aren't two separate people. This is a kind of symbolic play of the changes that Novens was making in himself. You know, maybe it didn't actually physically play out like this because Novens lived this life underneath 
probably a good guy, but just lost his way as life went on. And then he made the decision to make a change. And I think that's what it comes down to. He jettisoned off the bad parts of himself, which withered away and died. He made a choice. He said, I'm not going to be that guy anymore. It's pretty ungracious. I was sick for a long time, Peter. I don't know what the trigger was that broke us apart, but it happened. I can't be sorry. If it hadn't, had been you till I died. It would have been a lousy life and a miserable death. Too late to worry about it now. Things going well with Jamie? Yeah. Mom comes in Tuesday. I, uh, spoke to her doctor, as they say. She doesn't have very long. But for whatever she's got, determined to make up for the last 25 years since dad died. So eventually we end up with this scene in a hotel room where both versions of Novans are together and talking and apartment Novans actually says at one point that he was sort of sprung out of the other one so maybe that answers that question and he was the shadow initially so the good part of Novans essentially was the the sort of weaker part of the whole, you know, there was still that goodness in there, but he was the shadow element. And then, as time goes on, he's made that decision to change. Hotel Novens becomes the shadow, and the shadow starts to get destroyed by the light. So he gets weaker, his voice goes, he looks sick, and I really enjoy this scene, you know. Bruce Willis does a really good job of it, you know, the the kind of sick, dying version of himself. And again, we're not going for absolutes here, you know. Bad things aren't always so absolute. Bad people aren't always so absolute. And I think they've pitched it really well to be relatable. You know, we can all recognise maybe aspects of ourselves we don't like or aspects of ourselves that we want to improve. And I think... This is what it's playing on, that even bad Novans, hotel Novans, sitting there looking out of the window, we have some sympathy for him because I don't think he was ever the worst kind of person. And that's what it's saying to us, really. At some point, Peter Novans made a decision to change and let that bad version of himself be separated and wither away and die. And he walks out of that hotel room the man that was stifled by that bad self. Now, I think as a start to the 80s Twilight Zone, if I was sat there in the 1980s watching this, I can't remember when I first saw it, I think I would be quite happy with this one, and I would be thinking that this is actually a very worthy successor to the original. Like I said, this in itself is kind of a remake of Nervous Man in a $4 room where someone decides to be better. You know, I don't know when the original Shatterday short story was written by Harlan Ellison, whether it was pre-Twilight Zone or not, but there is a lot of similarity with that story. So perhaps it is playing to that part of me that needs the 80s Twilight Zone to be relatable to the original Twilight Zone. And I think this is. Bruce Willis is good. 
Wes Craven stages these scenes and this end scene especially well. And I think at this point, I would be quite happy with it because it is telling a very Twilight Zone-esque story with a moral core and something that's relatable to all of us that sometimes we do want to change. We just need to make the effort to do it. And then if you listen to Charles Aidman's closing narration, and as we know, he is someone from the original Twilight Zone, which was a nice touch. It is, I think, pitched quite perfectly. You know, it has a very poetic quality to it. It is something that I could imagine Rod Serling saying. So it's going to be interesting to keep an eye on those as we go through to see if they keep this level of consistency. But right now, for the first episode of the 80s Twilight Zone, well, the first story at least, because they would put multiple stories in one episode in this version, but I'm going story by story. For the first story at least, I think this is an excellent start. They've made good decisions. They've based the stories on work by some of the best writers out there, like Harlan Ellison. They've got people like Wes Craven into direct, up-and-coming star Bruce Willis. And what we end up with is a really great episode of The Twilight Zone, I think. So I think we're right to feel energized at this point. Whether that lasts is another story. But I hope you'll join me in Twilight Zone Aftermath again to find out whether that's the case. And if you want to do that, then go to patreon.com slash Twilight Zone podcast where you can get the rest of the run. But this one is for everyone with my compliments. And I thank you for listening. So I will see you next time on Twilight Zone Aftermath. Peter J. Novins, both victor and victim of a brief struggle for custody of a man's soul. A man who lost himself and found himself on a lonely battlefield somewhere in the Twilight Zone.